Chapter Seven of the Life of Kit Carson by Edward S. Ellis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Meanwhile, the Indians made it exceedingly lively for Kit Carson and his three companions. The latter had heard so much of the abundance of beavers in a certain section that they determined to visit it and make a thorough exploration. To do this, it was necessary to ride over a lofty rocky mountain peak, or take many hours to pass around it. Very naturally, they concluded to cut across lots, confident of their ability to take care of themselves, no matter what danger threatened. The ascent proved very exhausting to men and animals, for the trappers did not compel the weary beasts to bear them up the steep slope where it tired them to force their own way. They rested many times, but finally accomplished the ascent and passed over into the valley beyond. There disappointment awaited them. The most careful search failed to show the first sign of a beaver, and they had their labor for their pains. The toil of climbing the mountain peak was so severe that the hunters concluded to take the longer route home. Their steeds had been pushed so hard that they were permitted to set their own pace on the return. This, naturally enough, was a deliberate walk, while their riders talked, laughed, jested, and occasionally made some remark on the magnificent scenery by which they were surrounded. There was no call for haste, and they knew nothing of what had taken place in camp after their departure. Otherwise, they might have felt more impatience to rejoin their friends. All at once, the hunters descried four Indian warriors in the path in front. They were splendidly mounted, their hair ornamented with stained eagle feathers, their ugly countenances daubed with yellow, black, and crimson paint, and they were fully armed. Their appearance showed that they were on the war-path. Such undoubtedly being the case, a sight of the braves was a challenge to the hunters who accepted it without a second's hesitation. Pausing not a moment to consult on their plan of action, Kit and his companions spurred their horses to a dead run, with the purpose of bringing them within range of their rifles. But the steeds of the dusky foes were fleet of foot, and they sped away like the wind. The pursuit was a furious one, until the flying fugitives shot by a hill, when more than fifty warriors, similarly mounted and accoutred, dashed off to intercept the enthusiastic hunters. Just then it dawned upon Kit and his companions that the whole proceeding was a trap arranged by the Indians into which he and his friends had dashed at headlong speed. It was in such crisis that Kit Carson displayed his marvelous resources and lightning-like perception of the best course to adopt. The discovery of the ambush would have thrown almost any company of men, no matter how brave, into a panic or at least into temporary confusion, which would have been equally disastrous. Most probably they would have reined up or wheeled about and fled in the opposite direction. The whole band would have dashed in pursuit, and the running fight between four men and more than twelve times their number, every one of whom it is fair to presume was thoroughly familiar with the country, could have resulted in but one way. Skilled and daring as were Kit Carson and his comrades, they could not accomplish the impossible, as they would have had to do in order to escape the yelling band behind them. Kit was slightly in advance of the others, and did not check his animal in the least. On the contrary, he urged him to his utmost, 
and the four sped straight ahead on a dead run, seemingly as if they meant to charge the entire war party. Such, however, was not their intention. They shied off as much as they could, and throwing themselves forward and over the side of their horses ran the terrible gauntlet. No one of the trappers fired a shot, for if dismounted by the bullets of their enemies, each wished to have his loaded rifle in hand with which to make his last defense. The very audacity of the movement amazed the Indians. By the time they comprehended what the white men were doing, they were thundering in front of them. Then the warriors opened fire, and the bullets whistled about the horses and riders, who kept their steeds to the highest bent and finally passed beyond danger. Their escape, one of the most extraordinary on record. The Indians did not pursue the hunters, two of whom had been struck by their bullets, and Carson and his friends drew their horses down to a more moderate pace. The great scout admitted that he was never more utterly deceived and entrapped by the red man in all his life. But he saw in the occurrence a deeper significance than appeared on the surface. The ambush into which he and his friends had been led was only a part of the campaign against the entire party, who, weakened by the absence of Carson and his companions, were likely to fall victims to such a large band of warriors. Trembling with fear for their comrades, they again forced their animals to a high speed, and lost no time in making their way back to camp. They found everything in good shape, much to their relief, and were not at all surprised to learn of the visit that had been made by the savages during the absence of Kit and his companions. The wounds of the two trappers who were shot while running the fiery gauntlet were found to be of such a serious nature that the party had not gone far when they were obliged to go into camp again. One of them especially was in such a bad way that it was found necessary to carry him on a litter until the main camp was reached. There he was allowed to rest, and everything possible was done to make him comfortable. When he had fully recovered, the entire party headed for Old Park, once famous on account of the immense numbers of beavers found there. Disappointment, however, awaited them, for other trappers had preceded them, and made such thorough work that it was useless for the last arrivals to unload and set their traps. The party visited other sections, but in every instance they appeared to be a day too late for the fair. The beaver runs had been worked so thoroughly by others that it was useless for them to expect success. The beaver, as the reader probably knows, aside from its great value in producing fur and perfume, possesses a most wonderful instinct. They live in communities, and prefer to build their houses by small, clear rivers and creeks, or close to springs. Sometimes they are found on the banks of lakes. The dams which they construct with the skill of a professional civil engineer are built for the purpose of making sure of a full supply of water at all times and seasons. These dams are composed of stones, mud, and tree branches, the base being ten or twelve feet in thickness, sloping gradually upward to the summit. In building their dams, the beaver does not thrust the ends of the stakes into the bed of the river, but lays them down horizontally, holding them in place by piling mud and stones upon them. The logs which compose the dams are mostly from six to eight inches in diameter, though some have been found nearly two feet through. 
the enormous number of such logs used may be imagined perhaps when the ponderous character of the dams is remembered and when it is stated that some of them are more than an eighth of a mile wide every log after being gnawed off the proper length is stripped of its bark which is stored away for use as food during the winter the lodges of the beavers are composed principally of mud moss and branches circular in shape the space within being seven feet in width and about half as high the walls are so thick that on the outside the corresponding dimensions are nearly three times as great as within the roof is finished off with a thick layer of mud laid on with wonderful smoothness and renewed every year the severe frosts of winter freeze the lodge into such a solid structure that the beaver is safe against the wolverine which is unable to break through the wall resembling the adobe structures found in mexico and the southwest even the trapper who attempts to demolish one of the structures finds it tiresome labor even with the help of iron implements the beavers excavate a ditch around their lodges too deep to be frozen into this opens all their dwellings the door being far below the surface so that free ingress and egress are secured the half-dozen beavers occupying a lodge arrange their beds against the wall each separate from the other while the centre of the chamber is unoccupied during summer they secure their stock of food by gnawing down hundreds of trees the trunks or limbs of which are sunk and fastened in some peculiar manner to the bottom of the stream during the winter when the beaver feels hungry he dives down brings up one of the logs drags it to a suitable spot and nibbles off the bark it is impossible fully to understand how this remarkable animal does its work for as it never toils in the daytime it is out of the power of any one to watch its method the peculiar odiferous substance secreted in two glandular sacs near the root of the tail is castoreum more generally known as barkstone among the trappers the odor is powerful and is so attractive to the animals themselves that the trapper has only to smear some of it near the trap which is hidden under the water any beaver which catches the scent is sure to hasten to the spot and is almost certain to be caught in the trap End of chapter 7